think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 107 of Boys in Short Pants, the 108th episode. I'm Laura Carboneau. I'm Aiton Rainville. There we go. No shenanigans this time. <laughs> uh... And we've had a, a pretty big week of, of all kinds of, of little fun things uh, dropping into our laps. God, it almost uh, feels like we're back to normal times and we can avoid talking about COVID entirely, but uh, alas, well, alas, not quite I yet. I hate to disappoint you. No, not quite yet. Um, the first thing we want to talk about is, uh, you know, long-time listeners of the show will know that um, ethics and lobbying and conflict of interest has always been kind of the... Uh, the backbone of the podcast in a way and that, that's that's really where we we started we opened um, on the billionaire island aga khan saga so. the aga khan report exactly and since then we've had lots of fun going over it with a fine-toothed comb uh, who, else, who else is gonna do it really you know no we really are the only the only game in town when it comes to that stuff which is great uh we we love to do that uh so yeah the officer office of the commissioner of lobbying uh colloquially known as the lobbying commissioner uh, released a report this week on uh, David McNaughton, who was the former U.S. ambassador, who, um, should, just to refresh listeners, uh, went to go work for Palantir, which is, of course, the uh, Peter Thiel uh, surveillance tech startup. Well, I guess now it's not really a startup so much. Well, <laughs> I think that's an accurate way to describe its work. What, what was? No, I, I was being sarcastic about your... Oh. your the terrible surveillance Peter well, it's, it, it does surveillance technology like i don't really know what to so tell you big man. data I think data a, analytics company i think is how is. they've been presented in media all right well i'm gonna stick with what's accurate there and so call them a surveillance <laughs> technology firm because that's what they do um and uh since then he has gotten wrapped on the knuckles for having a bunch of meetings with uh various people in government uh mario dion our old friend the lobbying or the ethics commissioner rather um sort of bar issued an order uh barring him from um meeting and having conversation with a variety of public officials yeah uh, most of whom were deputy ministers and ministers well yeah let's let's start let's start further back right so basically dave mcnaughton made reference to having been was it david or baines that dropped the breadcrumb um that ultimately led to the instigation of the investigation it was reported by the logic i believe was uh one of the main media sources on this basically dropped a breadcrumb that mcnaughton had been in communication with baines and other public office holders and a lot of people scratched their head and said mcnaughton would be a reporting former dpoh or rpoh depending on which piece of legislation we're talking about exactly reporting public office holder or designated public office holder um is he allowed to do that became sort of the central question to this right and under the ethics act as you just mentioned uh the conflict of interest act i wasn't going to correct you but thank you we haven't had a a formal report yet no but there there, was and just yeah there's an issuance of order semi or colon official dealings on september 16th 2020 which is actually quite some time ago now um and it basically said uh nine regulatees should restrict their official dealings with uh david mcnaughton um just to put down some of the names on the list uh navdeep baines leslie church who is the chief of staff at pspc uh 
Public Service Procurement Canada, Ryan Dunn, the Chief of Staff at that time, to Navdeep Baines, Christia Freeland, uh, Simon Kennedy, the Deputy a name, Minister. A name you may have heard on the show before. Yes, Simon Kennedy, the Deputy Minister <laughs> of ISAID, uh, Bill Matthews, the Deputy Minister of Public Service Procurement Canada. And then Chief of Defense Staff Jonathan Vance, who now is <laughs> you, famous for you. a whole wholly other reason. Rick Deese and uh, Jody Thomas were, were the ones. So it's ISAID, Defense, Procurement are basically yes, the, the you can, three you can sort of see, categories. Yeah, you can sort of see why he's talking to those folks. Uh, of course, as a um, designated public office holder uh, in his one-year cooling-off period, he is not allowed to have direct and significant official dealings with those folks. Uh, or people... He's not allowed to have official contact with people he had direct and significant official dealings with, I believe is the correct formulation. And you can jump there if I'm incorrect on that. But yes, at any rate, he issued that order. And it, it, while there has not been a report, the order power itself requires him to have made a finding that um, the person in question is not complying with their post-employment obligations. That's a little nugget tucked into his power to make orders in the law. Uh, so in that sense, it's kind of a de facto, you know, adverse finding. But I am interested to see, and I still do not know the answer to the question of whether there will be an official report or not. So that will be interesting to see. So all that to say that this obviously is a point where the lobbying and conflict of interest acts have a sort of intersection point because this is about him talking to public office holders. Um, so the office of the commissioner of lobbying's report, and I guess we will just uh, we will just lay lay out the finding up front here. So is that McNaughton did? Let's go let's ahead. take a step back and just do one one <laughs> we more to take piece. Step back one more piece show. of background on this, right? <laughs> okay, so, go ahead. As I as I stated, there are two pieces of legislation that DPOHs and RPOHs are subject to when they leave their offices. These are the Lobbying Act and the Conflict of Interest Act. Both yes. of these have provisions for when you leave your office um, that you must comply with for a period of between either one to two years, um, if we're talking about the Ethics Act, or a period of five years if we're talking about the Lobbying Act. So what yes. we've just touched on is the cooling off period, which is housed under the Ethics Commissioner and the Ethics Act. And that is one sphere of potential investigatory space. Um, and then now we're going to touch on the other, which is the Lobbying Act, which is the other sphere. And it is the one that we have a report from the Lobbying Commissioner on basically uh, saying yes, yay or nay to whether or not McNaughton's conduct was in accordance with the act as, yeah. as legislated. Yes. And to summarize, on, on the conflict of interest side, there has been a sort of de facto finding that he did breach his post-employment obligations uh, a, in the a one presumptive year de facto, as yes. we have evidence of an order being issued to restrict people, which seems to... Well, yeah, and the, his order-making power, as I said, specifically requires him to find that the person is not in compliance. Sure. So I, in that sense, it's sort of like, yeah. But anyway, six all that to say. months, seven... So that was September... That was September. That puts us so almost... six months later. No, more yeah. than six. Yeah, about six months later. Three and three, baby. Yeah, I was like, but September is the ninth month of the year. Never mind. <laughs> Never mind. My math is bad. <laughs> this, guy, this guy can count, folks. <laughs> um, yeah, so, okay. To, to come to the actual... So, we don't know anything the there. Let's report. go to lobbying. What, what did the lobbying okay, commissioner Okay, going find? to lobbying now. The lobbying commissioner finds that McNaughton did not breach his five-year lobbying bill. Why? Tell now, me why, Laurent. You think, Laurent, why? He's talking to all these people. That's true. And uh, in fact, 
Nancy Belanger, the lobbying commissioner, agrees with you. Uh, she found that McNaughton had communicated 49 times with federal officials between January and May of 2020. That's a lot of times. Indeed, that is it is. a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. So here's where this um, falls into the sort of gray areas in the law. I, I, I think I'm, you know, I will put this slightly ungenerously and say there are two loopholes here uh, that help him out enormously. The first is that 31 of those 49 communications with public office holders were pro bono offers of Palantir products and services. Uh, that would fall into a procurement matter. Procurement is actually not covered by the con- or the lobbying act. Uh, so, it, and that's you know that's a choice well, made in the legislation. That's not entirely true. Let, let's be more specific. Lobbying or uh, the definition of lobbying is very prescriptive, but there's actually one area where it changes depending on what type of lobbying you're talking about. Consultant lobbying that occurs around procurement is part of the lobbying act yeah in-house lobbying that occurs around procurement is not part of the lobbying act and that's the important distinction here that because mcnaughton is working in-house uh yeah. in-house on a procurement file that does not constitute lobbying under the act as it presently exists and yes the, thank you for that clarification well, that is a very no, important it, one it is important because no i uh, I, yeah, I, well, I, I was not being sarcastic yeah <laughs> that is actually an important clarification yeah so in practice what this means is that organizations in-house all of your major defense companies your boat folks whoever it is none of that is considered lobbying under the act or yeah um because the idea i i don't know if i you know agree with the intent of it but the the spirit of it is that there are other processes by which these things become public uh yeah. namely procure like the procurement processes um so that is where the public disclosure picks up the ball where the lobbying act leaves off where that would yeah not and be also the case on the consultant lobbying side where these people are providing advice and you know liaising and doing all of this legwork to assist um people in the procurement space yeah and also i mean i think it's worth saying that just a lot of organizations that do business with the government uh like for instance if you if you like me have read several thousand of the the many many documents tabled at the health committee about the government's ppe uh sort of procurement efforts like every company under the sun was emailing them saying you know how can we we help with with uh uh ppe procurement and having to have all of those folks register to lobby would have been a bit ridiculous. Uh, so there, in a sense, there's a legitimate interest being served here by, by sort of carving out this space and, and saying like, you know, th- this is a place where other processes in the government can ha- kind of handle this. Yeah, everyone's selling something to the government of Canada. Yeah. That, that's a very different thing. Kind of than kind. It depends where, lobby. right. Yeah, and you, you can see that yes. there's areas where, you know, people yeah. are selling, tents to the military is ostensibly a very different conversation than people going around and talking to MPs about how, uh, you know, X fighter jet or X naval vessel is better than the other. Um, yeah. Procurement is a very broad space. And so this is perhaps an area where there should be some tightening perhaps to do here. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's hard to differentiate in terms of writing rules about, sort of the more political side of procurement versus the more mundane and rote side of procurement. 
Absolutely. So that that's an interesting piece. And actually, it's interesting because if you zoom out to we've talked before about the, the sort of the uh, we fiasco on on this program, this very program before. And uh, if by the way, this is constructed, if you are, uh, you know, an in-house person doing in-house work, though, I mean, part of the issue here is that with the we thing is that no one registered to lobby for a very long time. Uh, the CSSG was fundamentally a procurement matter, right? Uh, though even then that's a little hard to say because was it having, to, it's a grant contribution. No, actually, no, never mind because that was that with a grant or contribution and that was a contribution. It was a agreement. contribution. Actually, they, do, they do not have a loophole here. Never mind. So we'll strike that from the record. We won't actually strike it from the record because I'm far too lazy to go back and, and delete things, uh, <laughs> in post as we euphemistically called it the 15 minutes b- between us stopping recording and me uploading an episode usually. <laughs> Um, that's why we try and fact check each other on the air and it, it works yeah very exactly well for the most part or so yeah that, putting that to one after, after yeah fact. indeed put it putting that to one side so 31 of those phone calls pro pro bono offers of palantir products and services and thus a procurement matter and as an in-house lobbyist he is uh exempt from that being considered a lobbying matter so pretty pretty good deal the other 18 consisted of offers of advice and perspective, uh, which the commissioner determined only a minority of which related to lobbying subject matter. And here is where there's another nice little loophole, uh, which is that in um, the part of the law re- that sets out the, the terms of the five-year ban, if you are an in-house lobbyist for an organization, which is to say anything that's basically not a for-profit corporation... Um, you, sorry, yes, on the organization side, you cannot do any lobbying, uh, under your five-year ban. However, if you do work for a corporation, uh, which, like I said, is basically everything, or anything that's not like, or anything that is a for-profit corporation, sorry, uh, you have a little carve-out where you have the 20% rule, uh, which we've discussed on the show before, and we'll sort of go back to, um, you have to... Basically, as long as the lobbying you're doing on your five-year ban, if you're working for a corporation as an in-house lobbyist, can't exceed a significant portion of your duties, or what's called the twenty percent of the twenty percent rule, which means eight hours a week, or in this case, uh, looking at the, the busiest period, uh, thirty-two hours in a four-week period. And she found that he had spent two hours and thirty-five minutes. Uh, we've talked before about the twenty percent rule, and there's just one thing I want to highlight about it here, and then I will let Etienne tee off, uh, which is that there is a implicit sort of built-in bias in the twenty percent rule, which is that if you are very well connected, it works better for you because you have to spend less time trying to set up meetings and prep for them because you are very likely to get your phone calls answered, where people who are having to do a lot more hustling to get those. Um, those meetings are going to have a harder time and ha- more likely to breach that threshold. So, yeah, the, the 20% rule creates... It is just... Su- it is a rule written for graph paper and not one for the real world. Because yeah. there are... So, there, there's all sorts of like adverse dynamics that are created by it. Let, let me give you a few. The, the first one you described is... Uh, 100% correct. So you have uh, McNaughton, who is basically a well-regarded uh, liberal, able to yeah, communicate super, like, very much with in the in the inner circle. The most senior staff in government by sending a quick short email, right? Yeah. If you have someone who is hesitating to write an email to to an MP for the first time, and it takes them, you know, 
two hours, that potentially is more significant in terms of breaching the 20% rule, writing that single email because it includes preparatory time. And, and maybe you were speaking to yeah. your government relations team about how you craft this email and all these other things go into it. And how many people were at that meeting? Oh, you were talking in front of five people about how to craft that email. That all counts towards your 20% rule that, That's well. all their staff time too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and just to zoom out one quick sec here before you go any deeper is that the 20% rule applies in this little anomalous part of the, the five-year ban, but is usually most relevant in the obligation to Correct. register. Like At if, all. If you're basically, you have to register as a lobbyist if you're spending a significant portion of your duties lobbying, it, and the, they've defined a significant portion as 20% of your, your sort of weekly work hours. So let, let me just be clear here. Be, Any combination, yes, and yes, go ahead and specify that. No, further. no, because it's <laughs> basically everything in the Lobbying Act, there is a distinction between consultant and in-house lobbying. Everything. Yeah. Consultant lobbyists, yeah. their duty to register is basically as soon as they sign a contract, where with in-house, yeah. it becomes a matter it's of the 20%, 20 thing. Yeah. And it's 20% of one FTE. So you can't have like four people doing, you know, two hours of lobbying a week and, and say like, oh, well, you know, they're not. No, like that. It's 20% of one FTE, basically. But let, let me give you really weird edge cases, right? So if someone is flying out to meet the minister in Ottawa, how do you count their time? They're okay. So they're flying from Toronto. That's one hour out. Do you count the return time? Is the travel time there preparatory time? If yes, what if they're flying from Vancouver and all of a sudden you're hitting that 20% rule taking a single meeting um, because you live further away? What if you're doing other meetings in Ottawa? How do you divide your travel time? Yeah, just per by me in relation to <laughs> like how what now becomes your preparatory time. Like none of this has really strong jurisprudence around it um, because I mean in in practical terms this law is not new, but it's reasonably new. It dates from the early years 15 of the Har years old Harper government. Um, yeah. So the twenty percent rule was nice on paper um, because it set out what appeared to be a bright line at the time but i think in practice it is incredibly confusing and open to way too much subjectivity in terms of how one interprets their time being used one of the things that i found interesting um and that i've never really seen in any of the lobbying commissioners reports around the that touch on the 20 percent rule is like a deep dive into the preparatory time side of things yeah, um, there's a nice yeah because this, this we touched on this with the Wii stuff. There's a nice it was it was fairly critical to the whole yeah yeah that's there. exactly it right and we we don't yeah. have a lobbying commissioner report on the Wii stuff, um, but on the lobbying commissioner's website there's a really nice graphic where it sort of talks about the preparatory time and like adds it all together for you shows this sort of happening, but even in the McNaughton report. The sort of only mention to it is really, it talks about like it not take, hypothetically, it would not have taken him long to craft these emails. Um, but there isn't a conversation of like, what other preparatory time? Did he have meetings with, you know, senior executives around this? Did EAs were like, it doesn't track yeah. the preparatory time sort of through the system. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, him getting a briefing note from a subordinate about, you know, a matter they want him to bring to the government. Like, well, whose staff time do you count there? McNaughton's or someone else's? Or both. And does that both. Work? Yeah, both. we're both. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I think ideally, right, like you want to look at the whole pipeline holistically, but that's not really what's being done here. 
in this report because, specifically. Like the reality because of McNaughton's it the one under the five year ban. It's like it's very hard to do. Yeah, that it's it's very. Hard I mean, to that's do the thing, right? Reason, it's very easy right? to insulate yourself as the person under the five year ban by having someone else do all the legwork. Well, <laughs> right? someone else can do the legwork, but theoretically, that's a breach. But for the lobbying commissioner, has to then track back through the organization, and he's working at Palantir, a major American company. Um, so they interview McNaughton and they say, well, who else worked on this? Well, I've got my, my dude in Texas and this person in San Francisco. And suddenly the Canadian lobbying commissioner is making meetings or is uh, sending calendar invites to all these random people throughout the corporation and all sorts of positions. And it like, it doesn't strike as very plausible that the lobbying commissioner is going to do this and that these people have any obligation to comply or even talk to the lobbying commissioner. And so... Like, McDonald's like, well, you know, the, the, the company, the, this is all hypothetical, but like the company council maybe told them not to talk to them. This, this is entirely made up, but just illustrative. Um, Parody. What, what recourse does the lobbying commissioner have in order to get to the bottom of whether or not the 20% rule was breached? And the reality is none. Like the, the most they can do yeah. is really... Um, interrogate Ask him. Yeah. McNaughton. And he's like, well, I, don't, I have no idea how Which much my done. EA worked on this, but my EA is based overseas. So good luck. Yeah. Like it. <laughs> so to, to bring it back, the whole point of this is the 20% rule makes really no sense and should be at the top of anyone's list um, in terms of lobbying reforms. Well, and it, it, to be clear about it too, is that it's good for people who are very well connected. It's basically, it's the easiest rule to breach for people who are, like, you would think would be best equipped to breach lobby or, like, skirt lobbying rules to begin with, yes. right? Like, it's a lighter burden for people who you'd be more worried about, impro- like, it, you know, committing some sort of impropriety or having inappropriate access. If you are a well-connected uh, cabinet minister, former cabinet minister... Um, or whatever, or, right? Ambassador sure. or senior any, staffer, any like... The odds yeah. that you're spending 20% of your time or greater than 20% of your time basically directly engaged with people um, in government of, of a particular stature in government is like not very plausible. Like even the best consultant lobbyists who do lobbying as their work are not spending 20% of, well, some are, some aren't, but generally you're not spending like 20% of your time physically face-to-face with um, public office holders on a on a super regular basis. It happens week to week for sure, no doubt. But I mean, you're meeting with clients, you're doing all of these other things. So now you, you transmit that to an in-house, uh, an in-house situation, a corporation, um, and you're really having to engage in a substantial effort if you're going to cross that 20% rule and you're well-connected and you're not spending that time you know, in relation to prep or other things. Like, it's just, yeah. it becomes very implausible that a well-connected person would be, would not be able to skirt that rule rather effectively. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, if they, if they pick up a briefing note that someone else wrote, you know, generally, um, that doesn't count towards their time. And they're the ones whose time uh, is, is, you know, more, you know, judiciously tracked because they might be under some kind of prohibition. So at any rate, all that to say, uh, there are, yes, the twenty percent rule we've highlighted before as a bit of an absurdity in the law, or rather, you know, it's not quite an absurdity, but something that's not aged particularly well, and that really is quite ripe for for reform. 
and and that's not to say that it should be you know more permissive but it's just to say that the current structure with the, it's this, this really bright line at, at sort of 20 percent of an fte is really not that functional uh and there are too many edge cases and too many weird little rules that that can really muddy the waters and make it easier for people to do improper lobbying uh, which I think we can agree is is what we don't want to see. Like it's it's about protecting the public trust, and uh, the rule does not protect the public trust well. So the other thing is the discrepancy in organizations and corporations yes. in terms of if you're an in-house for an organization, cannot do lobbying. If you're an in-house during your five-year ban, if you're in-house for a corporation during your five-year ban, you can do some lobbying off the side of your desk sometimes, maybe, which is a kind of like why is that the case? <laughs> like, I, as uh, the, the lobby commissioner law, addressed it, yes. yeah, the lobbying commissioner addressed this in her report and said, like, I could not find a legislative anal- or rationale for why this uh, exception was made, um, and I, I think that there probably isn't one, and they should probably just close the close the loophole no, there. No, it turns out that you know the drafters are not perfect and they make mistakes, um, which. You know, it happens. Though it's a quite intentional carve-out, because it's it really would be easy to just fold it into one thing, but they're both enumerated separately, and one has different rules than the other. So it's not like an oversight. This was a deliberate choice, obviously, but it just seems like it was made without a lot of scrutiny or discussion. So I've, I've done this on legislation in the past, where you basically go back into Hansard from when that bill yeah. was in <laughs> front oh, of yeah. officials. <laughs> Um, for clause by clause coming out of committee and you're like please someone address the point um, because I would love to know if there was intentionality around this at the time the, the one I actually yeah. did that for was in relation to Mario Dion's reinterpretation of uh, uh, what's the word direct and significant official dealings with, well with organized the aura the term of is it yeah, organizations? I can't remember how it's put in the entity. law. Entities. Entities. Entity. Whether or not there was yes. any discussion of what constituted an entity. Public entity, private entity. There was, And best I was able to find, there was no discussion of it at all when it went through clause by clause. Yes. Um, so it is, all, it is always interesting to go back to Hansard and see the legislative text. And it's worth noting that, you know, this is where... No one thinks about it at the t- time, really. Um, but when you're passing these things that... People will go back into the transcripts like decades from now to see what was asked and what the intention at the time was. Yeah. Um, and it, it's, you know, it's used for legal precedents. It's used for all, all sorts of things to determine the intent of various um, otherwise opaque passages in, in acts. Um, yeah. I was just going to flag, uh, so we've made reference to it, that the lobbying commissioner... Uh, published a little while ago a document titled Improving the Lobbying Act Preliminary Recommendations, in which she makes 11 um, different, um, I, I'd say broadly well-considered uh, recommendations around how to change the Lobbying Act. The Lobbying Act is uh, up for statutory review. <laughs> has been for about five, six years now. But this is something I'm surprised has not become more of a political issue because frankly... Um, the liberals are weak on it. Like conservatives are talking about like improper lobbying in their social media graphics. Um, but parliament has yet to refer, um, the lobbying act. Well, yeah, that's the important thing to the ethics committee. Yes. That we've been, yeah. So I, I used to work for a politician who, uh, who was on the ethics committee and people would ask us like, why don't you guys review the lobbying act? And the answer was like, well, we can, but it doesn't count unless the house of commons actually directs us to do it for the purposes of the statutory review clause in the act. So at the time working in majority government, obviously like we had no leverage there. And I still at this point, it's, uh, 
it requires the house to still make that direction. But how do, so, how does, so this is actually a, a weakness in my knowledge of parliamentary proceedings in terms of how that direction is given. Um, I mean, typically it's given by the government, um, but is it something an opposition day motion could be on? Like, I, yeah, I, 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 I don't see a that reason. would constitute yeah, the will of parliament, I, but I don't know. I, I don't see, yeah, but, I, I don't see a reason why an opposition day couldn't do it. Of course, no party would want to waste an opposition it. day on it. That's the difference. Yeah. And so that's the only, <laughs> you only get, you know, very opposition few. to trigger it. Um, yes. Otherwise, no. So you could you could have folded into any of these big super motions that have passed, but I guess no one's thought to do it. Yeah, because yeah, because it strikes me that you know one, the government is politically weak on it, and two, it is genuinely an area in which uh, reform is needed and or welcome, um, depending on which way things go. Um, but anytime you open up either the Conflict of Interest Act or the Lobbying Act, you have, I mean, as someone who's been subject to both of these. Um, I mean, there is the real, the very real concern of it just unnecessarily ratcheting tighter on everything, um, rather than being a more considered rebalancing of the legislation, which I think is what. Yeah, is like there required. are places where you can ratchet tighter, and some places where I think, like as we've discussed with the the entities part of the the Conflict of Interest Act, where you're like, like I said, this is about protecting the public trust. And for instance, we've talked before about the the decision that the Conflict of Interest Commissioner made basically saying that for the purposes of the act, federal government departments count as entities that you cannot be employed by. It's like, well, who does that protect, right? Like someone who's who gets a paycheck from the government going to work for another part of the government, to me does not seem to like imply somewhat like the, the public trust being betrayed or abused in any sense, yeah, right? Correct. Like it, so this, this is where that I way, have my beef with Mario Zio. I've, I've yes. read an article for Policy Options <laughs> on the matter, and uh, there's never been yes. an answer or a, a public no, but answer I was just, about yeah. many of the compounding factors, um, such as... Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah, okay. I, I don't want to go into this. <laughs> there, I just wanted to point that out as an example of like what the law is supposed to protect from and like where that it doesn't quite meet that threshold yeah, there's sometimes. No. So... Yes, David McNaughton being able to call up literally anybody in the government and have a conversation with them about whatever he wants, to me, we should be looking at that and not like, you know, a, a junior staffer at, at Department of Fisheries and Oceans going to become a, you know, senior policy analyst at Department yeah, of Fisheries and Oceans seems once insane. it's done. Like that to me, it's like, I don't really know what we're guarding Or a cabinet minister becoming an ambassador, as the case may be, although... Yeah, though we are not clear yet. Oh, on there's that's never a been an adequate response <laughs> given to that. Yeah, so, so this is something we, we've discussed because Stefan Dion obviously was a uh, global affairs minister and then was appointed to be an ambassador. Uh, and we were like, wait, doesn't that trigger this entities test? Like, but no. No, the only answer no one seems I've to have ever gotten, on it. which was via a, uh, an intrepid reporter who is helping me out on uh, trying to solve this. Um, <laughs> You're going to crack the bottom of The response of from the lobby commissioner, this has never been published anywhere, and which is why it's sort of like... Conflict of interest commissioner. Or, sorry, yes. Um, it's never been published anywhere, and which is why it's sort of just in the ether as a suggestion. The response at the time was something along the lines of, uh, no, because you can't be both post reporting office holder and subject to it at the same... Like, it was a very non-answer and subject to it at the same time. It oh, was, because the the ambassador position is a public. Yeah, but, okay. But yeah. that's wrong. Maybe, but still, even then, I don't think that that your role as yeah, public then office it holder, kicks in. It kicks in. You are a former, and this wall comes up. 
that you can't then go back to become a reporting office yeah. holder without reconciling with that wall because that situation is no different than though by that logic you wouldn't be able to change jobs in as a political staffer period well, in, in government we have examples of political staffers having to request um permission <laughs> from the uh conflict uh ethics commissioner or conflict about the ethics commissioner going between i think it was treasury board and uh lrb at the time uh they don't call it lrb do they liberal research bureau i have no idea what no that that's, no i oh yeah that okay. was uh, I'm, I'm mixing the conservative terminology for it at the time but within government uh period um yes. okay that's interesting a- anyways, i didn't know that wrote a long piece on this it's out there we have other topics we'd like to discuss today Yes, we do. So the other report that came out this week that was uh, very interesting was the the Auditor General uh, is doing a series of reports on the government's COVID response. And she had one uh, that that was tabled yesterday on pandemic preparedness, surveillance and border control measures, which focused on the Public Health Agency and the CBSA, Canada Border Services Agency. uh, And in particular, whether PHAC, as we are calling it, was prepared for a pandemic response supported by t- accurate and timely public health data. If it data. was a union, you'd whether... never be able to call it PHAC. You'd have to call it no, PHAC. <laughs> PHAC, whether PHAC and CBSA implemented and enforced border control quarantine measures. So I will just go through the, the sort of conclusions quickly. Um, overall, she found that PHAC was not adequately prepared to respond to the pandemic and it underestimated the potential impact of the virus at the onset of the pandemic. And we will come back to that because uh, <laughs> I think it's ever? the most, because <laughs> I think it's the most interesting part of this report. Um, they hadn't resolved longstanding issues in health surveillance, which is to say sort of like, you know, getting good data from uh, good health data from, from the provinces and, you know, not having effective systems in place to sort of like get that stuff quickly. They did not update or test all their plans for a national health response to a pandemic. Uh, they had an exercise plan for 2020, which had to be canceled due to the pandemic, <laughs> which is unfortunate. Um, the Global Public Health Information Network, about which uh, the Globe and Mail has gif- Griffin, <laughs> Griffin has, has uh, it, yes. yes, which the Globe and Mail has spilled a lot of ink about, uh, did not raise an alert when the virus was first reported, and like I think there has been plenty said about that, and I don't think there's much you know for us to add there. Um, with that said, they said PHAC quickly adapted their plans, continually adjusted their pandemic response. Um, which is, is nice to hear. On the border side of things, it was also not a super good picture. Uh, they didn't know whether two-thirds of incoming travelers followed quarantine orders and verified uh, only 40% of their high sort of concern cases to law enforcement and then didn't follow up with law enforcement to see if they had followed up on those cases that they did refer. Uh, so a little... It, it seems like they were not very well prepared uh, to deal with this. So... This report basically says, like, PHAC was not ready and did not have the systems in place to get timely and accurate public health data. Um, for instance, the information they were getting from the provinces in a lot of cases did not include data about whether the person was hospitalized, about their symptoms, about the onset date of their symptoms, about the risk factors that person had. Um, and they've only recently been able to kind of rectify this. Only 4% of total cases from February to June were given to the agency within 24 hours of detection, which is not a great service standard for this kind of thing. Um, and then, yeah, as we said, with the, the quarantine thing, they were really overwhelmed and weren't able to follow up on their high, their high concern cases. Uh, only, you know, ref- so what you're seeing there is scrambling. 
right? As they're triaging priorities and, you know, they're trying to get health inf- data infrastructure going. They're trying to get, you know, nationwide quarantine infrastructure going. And to an extent, to the extent that they got that stuff working, I think, you know, fantastic, great. However, I think this takes us <laughs> back to what however. the... Yes. This takes us back to the original sin of... What I think is the original sin of the pandemic. So, for about a year, you know, we've been doing episodes apart, mostly, saying how did government not wake up to that this was a big deal until it was too late right that if, if anyone who's listened to the show for the past year can tell you that we've been saying this over and over again like what happened why did they have to do serb and all of this other stuff like after you know half the public service had gone home to you know because there was a deadly virus going around uh, and they had to do this stuff like you know as it was at its most acute and just in general like it was a total emergency response uh without you know any kind of like ramp up in the months before and i think in this report we finally have our answer uh and let me just pull up the relevant passage from oh, i've got it uh you've got it well so, i've got the first uh, let, let eight, me let me begin I, 8.81 okay, for anyone looking for the reference well put put the head put the heading above it pandemic risk assessment <laughs> i i've just so, got the highlighted yeah, like, excerpt Um, Tattooed on my arm is actually what I'm reading it from. We found Mm. that the Public Health Agency of Canada completed a series of rapid risk assessments for the initial outbreak, but did not assess the pandemic risk of this emerging infectious disease. Not a full stop there, but let me just, for, for dramatic emphasis, put a full stop there. Or its potential impact were it to be introduced to Canada. Once the emergency response plan was activated for the coronavirus on January 15th, blah, 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 blah. No, but uh, this stuff is, okay. I think that the blah, 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 blah here that's is That's not really the excerpt critical. that I have in front of me. I, I, I had the okay. blah, blah, blah because but, I only had the first two lines. Yeah, but here's what's, what I think is essential is related guidance called for the completion mm. of pandemic risk assessments, right? So they have a playbook, right? And we talked a lot about playbooks early in the pandemic last year that said when you activate your emergency response plan about a biological threat of any kind, something you do is you do a pandemic risk assessment to see, okay, what would happen if this were to become a pandemic level event? What would we need to do? And, you know, at that point, maybe somewhere in in late January, someone would have said, hmm, looking at what happened in Italy when this became a pandemic, lots of people, basically the whole country, has to stay home for a while. How do we keep those people alive? How do we make sure that they have money to buy groceries when they're able to go get them? Like this kind of thing. Instead, no one thought about this till mid-March. Um, well, so I'll, I'll let you carry well, on. From let me there. drill back down on the part that I had, which was <laughs> uh, a series of rac- rapid risk assessments. So we actually, as far as I know, these documents haven't been released. They'll probably be released, I'd imagine, as part of the Hesse motion. I tipped them yesterday. Buried, <laughs> well, yeah. Buried among uh, either thousands or millions of other documents. Um, otherwise, they will come out very belatedly via access to information. A rapid risk assessment could be anything. We really don't know. It could be an email. Well, it, um, it, it, the, the next paragraph addresses this, uh, which is the agency prepared a series of 24-hour rapid risk assessments. And here, once again, is something that I am just baffled by how this was allowed to happen. Using a methodology that was in a pilot phase of implementation had not yet been formally evaluated or approved. But what is, so to go back to my point is we don't know what the methodology is, right? Like the methodology could be an intern on Twitter 
um, gathering stories and culminating. I'm sure it was a little more rigorous I, I than don't, that. I but don't doubt. We don't know. We don't but know, we don't know. Right? Like, we don't know the spectrum yeah. of it. But the 24-hour rapid risk assessment, the, the like completely inconceivable thing for me is yeah. Patty Heyju, Minister Heyju, throughout the entire lead-up to March 15th, basically, is on tape a million times saying the risk to Canadians is low. And that statement, again and again by our Minister of Public Health, was presumptively um, based on this series of rapid 24-hour risk assessments. Today... Yeah, and let when, me... Let, let me just finish this point. No, yeah, I'm letting you go. Today, go ahead. Today, <laughs> Tam was pressed on it um, by reporters during sort of the, the daily COVID update. Um, she didn't... One, the questions weren't that wide-ranging on the Auditor General report as I, I would have liked to have seen. But basically what she said is, the risk assessments were accurate because they were about the moment at which the risk assessment occurred. Which for me is yeah. absolutely bewildering because that's of, the opposite of a risk assessment. Yes, that is <laughs> risk assessment. That's a current situation assessment. Yes, the nature of a risk assessment is supposed to be forward-looking because where does risk come from? The unknown, things yet to have the happened. The future, the future, if yes. you will. To to try and claim that a risk assessment is basically like how much trouble are we in right now? isn't a risk assessment it's an assessment that's a how much trouble are we in right now assessment <laughs> yeah. yes so even sp specifically the auditor general says about this we found that the methodology was not designed to assess the likelihood of the pandemic risk posed by a disease like covid19 in canada uh and the potential impact um and then because these assessments did not consider forward-looking pandemic risk the agency assessed that covid would have a minimal impact if an outbreak were to occur in canada like that to me, like if you talk about all these issues with data and, and border security and stuff like that, like that's, this kind of all comes back to the fact that the agency completely whiffed the call on how dangerous and widespread this thing would be because they simply did not do the work that they were, by their own guidance, supposed to do and instead opted to do these rapid risk assessments with using a methodology that hadn't even been approved and that it turns out really dramatically by... To, to say orders of magnitude almost feels like I'm underselling it. Like, and to, to be quite frank, like, this killed people, right? Like, this this decision to not do this right and to seriously underrate the risk meant that when we were facing a pandemic situation, we were unprepared for it, did not have timely and accurate data, did not have the ability to control at scale that we should have, did not have the ability to respond economically that we should have at scale. Did not scale. have equipment, did like, not have PPE, people, did people not... died. People died because of that. Like, it's not a, it's not a small thing at all. So, for Patty Haidu to say, well, you know, at the time the risk Canadian was as low, someone in her department, and some, no, I should say that again, someone in her office, the political staffers, should have said, okay, you keep saying the risk Canadians was low. What is that I'm looking based over on? This, this CBC, yes, I keep looking over the CBC Newsnet footage of, of, like, empty Italian cities. Like, where are you getting this risk is low thing? Can you walk me through your reasoning on this? But no one seems to have done that, or if they did, they were satisfied by an answer that should not have been satisfactory because it was so wrong by so many orders of magnitude that it's just, it's like criminal incompetence. That, that I think is absolutely the core of it for me, because the, the role of the minister's office, the reason why in Canada we have, you know, 15 staff, 15 political staff surrounding ministers we talk about is the challenge function. The 
Ideally. Ideal. Well, you know, that's, that's why they're there. I mean, half of them <laughs> No, I know you're right, staff. but, like, my God, this is, like, but, the, the worst staffing fail of the but millennium. But the reason policy staff are around a minister is to press civil servants on the facts and the assumptions that they bring to you. And if you're not doing that, you should not exist. You should not have that job because you're not doing anything. That is your only responsibility in that role, basically. Um, and, you know... I, I've experienced it. I've I've experienced and lived lived through very awkward comms events where we took for granted, um, you know, stats that public servants had brought to us, and it turned out they had a foundation of absolute jello. Um, one comes to mind in terms of RCMP staffing numbers. Um, yes, the, those who know will know. But the nature and and the, and that was a failure in our part. But luckily, it was not one that had very serious implications. The nature of this was, this was the absolute biggest misimaginable on a global pandemic when it was clear it was going to be a global pandemic. It hadn't been announced by the WHO, but we had multiple countries in lockdown all over the world. Um, we had cases appearing in Canada. And to wait until the very last conceivable moment when the prime minister's wife nearly transmit the prime minister one can only presume uh through his wife nearly transmitted it to the entire fir first minister's meeting in a sort of uh science fiction the tactical or decapitation strike time, <laughs> the lone survivor style thing like it's just absolutely bewildering absolutely bewildering in retrospect and yes. i am perhaps a little incensed at this uh, OAG report. And I'm hoping in the future we'll get more, like even more details on this. But you're right, this is the original sin and it is appalling that we do not have more information on what went wrong here. No, like I, I am surprised every question today at the press conference you mentioned wasn't like, why did you guys not do a full pandemic risk assessment like your own guidance calls for in this kind of situation, right? Like that's a question I would love to know the answer to. That should to. have been uh, all, every single question. Should have been, how did you miss the pandemic? And there is yeah. really no satisfactory answer for that as of yet. No, and, and in fact, I'll, I'll zoom forward a couple paragraphs here, which is that uh, uh, we reviewed the meeting eight minutes of the agency's two can key. Sorry, we reviewed the meeting minutes of the agency's two key pandemic response committees and found little discussion concerning the ongoing low risk rating for COVID nineteen. However, on 12th March 2020, in light of escalating case counts, senior provincial and territorial public health officials raised the need for a public, aggressive public health measures, including mandatory quarantine for international travelers. Canada had 138 confirmed cases at that time. On March 15th, the Chief Public Health Officer of Canada, Theresa Tam, requested that the risk rating for COVID-19 be upgraded from low in the agency's daily situation reports as well as on its website. The next day, the agency's final risk assessment raised the overall COVID-19 risk rating to high for the general public. And it's like, at that point, like, this was basically... PHAC did not wake up one day and was like, oh, actually, the risk situation has changed. It's literally... Public health officials from the provinces and territories were like, hey, this is really a problem. And then Teresa Tam had to step in and go like, yes, okay, let's upgrade the risk rating. But at no point did their actual analysis change from like how I understand no, this because paragraph. their analysis. <laughs> they were not, not doing the pandemic risk assessment. It was 24-hour rapid yes. risk assessments. I don't believe the, uh, the OAD. They only did six of them yeah, as well. Yeah, so six the only the, yeah, only the last one snapshots. said it was high. What yeah. on earth? Why was there not a rolling staff 24-7? Like, <sighs> and People will say, oh, this is very easy to say from hindsight. But, like, for me, 
The key fact here is that their guidance tells them to do this and they didn't do it is because look, everyone who's worked in the public service or around the public service know it is very procedure and rule driven. And if there is a procedure that says in this situation, you do this and you do not do it, you then open yourself up to a lot of problems when it comes to responsibility for what comes after that, uh, to be honest. So it's, uh, you know, if, if the guidance said, well, that's not a usual practice, then at least at that point, I would say like, well, clearly we need to reform the procedures here because the procedures failed us. But here the procedure was just ignored. Yeah. <laughs> Which is worse. And, and the other in a the lot of ways I'll add, because this was substantial to my thinking early on on uh february 24th there was an article published in the atlantic that talked about basically everyone's going to get covid um that you know it's so contagious uh so early on that everyone's going to get covid it's nearly unstoppable and it'll become cough cold and covid season and that was an article that really struck me um because i you know i thought that admission was stunning and this was in late february and i was you know deliberating what impacts this would have and i sent it to <laughs> we were like should we cancel that trip to yeah, chicago exactly. that was our first <laughs> our, like my entire um early frame of reference for covid is two things one my decision about wearing gloves on the subway um, which of course seems ridiculous in retrospect and then our decision around our trip to chicago and deliberating whether or not it went through international airports regional airports what type of exposure we'd have to international travelers things along those lines but that was all well before um Canada, the risk Canada to Canadians was still low in fact. Year, right? <laughs> and I read this piece and I sent it around to my colleagues and I was talking to colleagues who um, expressed like, you know, I, I don't really know how to read this COVID thing. And I was on Reddit and I was reading anecdotes from doctors in Italy and the absolute horrible situation they're having there. And I was having a lot of doubts um, about what was going on and sort of what the future would hold. Um, not to say like, you know, I did anything miraculous about it, um, because that's not my role <laughs> at all. Um, but I was really skeptical. Um, and I was hoping that the public health officials have, would be on top of this. Like I want to trust in PHAC. I want to trust our public health officials. I think it is beneficial to society when everyone believes in our public health officials. Um, but the evidentiary trail of what happened that is beginning to build first with uh, some of the HESA documents coming out and the OAG, and we'll eventually, hopefully, have a full inquiry unless Bill Blair is put in charge of it. Then we'll have uh, <laughs> a few liberal partisans put. put and McClellan, and, and maybe. McClellan will be leading <laughs> the fixer. It, it'll be two months, <laughs> and it won't be the power to um, talk to anyone she wants. Actually, compel document or documents and witnesses yeah. and all that stuff. Um, yes. But like. I really do look forward to being able to fast forward a few years to that report because it is going to be absolutely scathing, scathing yeah. of the public health side of these things, uh, not not necessarily the economic side of things. Yeah, and I do think there was, uh, I, I think, you know, we've said the political staff here didn't do their jobs, and I think that's true, uh, but I think if you zoom out a bit from that, like, the original sin of the pandemic was... I think PHAC really getting this wrong. And I think the liberals really owe it to everyone to ask themselves why they let that happen. And I think the answer to why they let that happen, why they didn't ask the hard questions is excessive deference, yeah. right? Because they were saying, trust the experts, trust the experts, trust the experts. And we both think like when experts are doing their jobs right, 
it makes a lot of sense to trust them. But you need to do a little bit of, of trust but verify here. A little bit of due diligence about what they're looking at, what they're thinking about, the problems they're thinking through, the sort of lateral things that they might not expect, and just make sure that whatever they're coming to you with is solid. And, and that applies to public health, it applies to economics, like whatever, like the finance people, the, the infrastructure and people, this, like whoever, is... right? It just doesn't matter who it is, but experts always need, you just need to learn how to ask the right questions and make sure you're actually doing it. Yeah, if, if you're <laughs> like, it seems stupid, but if your mechanic comes to you and says, um, you need new brakes, like at a certain level, especially when you're playing the challenge function, you should say, what do the brakes look like, right? how much wear is on the pads what do what do the rotors look like and if you're not asking those questions yeah. and you're just saying okay i'll change my brakes you're gonna get fleeced you're gonna get fleeced every single time yes. and everything yeah yeah and perhaps i think not quite a simple analogy because mechanics have a financial incentive sure. to, to sell you goods and services but, but that no, perhaps there are public incentives, health people don't there are but. incentives in <laughs> the yes. civil service to not brief up bad news and this i think is one of yep. like one of the crucial things that civil uh, that political staff need to be aware of when they're dealing with the civil service is often the level of the civil service that they deal with is the same. It's the highest tier. It's the ADMs and above, D DG level and above, really. And very, very rarely either are the lower level policy analysts in the room or if in the room they're never speaking because they're, they're, they are by design inten intentionally carved out of that process. And the result yeah. of what you get is a little bit of the telephone game being built into the process of the person speaking to you about the topic at hand doesn't actually really know all the ins and outs because they're reasonably high up the chain and they just know a little bit about a lot of things. And their role... In fact, in that way, they're a lot like the political staffers they're talking to, right? Who need to have a 30,000 But the nature view. of this dynamic can be very superficial. And it behooves political staff, particularly on very sensitive issues, to really drill down, get beyond the DG level, maybe make the point of having the civil service bring the policy analysts into the room and pushing them out of their comfort zone and having those policy analysts participate in meetings and say things that haven't gone through 15 levels of approval. Uh, <laughs> like, honest to God, it is... Uh, yeah. Suggesting this is anathema to the way the public service works, but it needs to happen from time to time in order for um, frank and fair advice to actually flow from the public service level up through the minister's office. But if the minister's office yep. just happily sits down with the same five uh, five to 10 ADMs and DGs every week and has served, you know, it's warm tray of everything is nice and nothing is wrong and uh, yep, we're on top of it. And then the civils, uh, and then the political staff turn around and sell that to their minister, then the entire system doesn't work and it breaks down. Uh, and it breaks yeah. down at the worst times when there are serious issues because those issues are not flowing up in the way they should be because it's, you know, internal politics, whatever the case may be. There are reasons why it is not, uh, you know, there are reasons why through multiple layers of middle managers, messaging gets softened, facts get softened, all of the rest of this ends up falling off um, and it and it hurts when there's genuine, genuine crises. Yeah. So uh, I'm gonna offer you a choice here because we are at 55 minutes and we have Damn three you, more things David on the Damn you, David McDonald! You took too much time. 
You did. So we have this, the accountability thing, the, the CPC convention, or the carbon tax, or price. Let's do, let's depending do, the, on who you let's do the accountability thing, I think is my... Sure, I guess that that, that picks up from where we left off mo- most uh, easily. So, lo- so over oh, the... Pa- oh, oh go I was going to... I'll, I'll let you do it. Um, right now, there there's sort of two burning... Well, put aside everything COVID, there's sort of two burning scandals, and we haven't really addressed either on the podcast. Nor will um, we, really. Nor will we, maybe. We'll see how it goes. Um, the first is everything going on at D&D, um, which is the various sexual impropriety allegations and the ombudsperson uh, going before committee, the allegations that Har- Harjit Sajan and his role as uh, Minister of National Defense did not properly respond to the Jonathan Vance situation. All of these things you can look up if you're unfamiliar with them. Um, you only sort of need to know the high levels for for the purpose of this discussion here today. Um, and the other is sort of the we saga uh, that's ongoing. But one of the things that came out, particularly on the D&D side, is the opposition came together and put forward a motion through the Ethics Committee to call several, I think three or four, um, political staff before committee. And there's every time this happens, there are people. And this was an opposition day motion as was well. Was it uh, House of Commons opposition it, it, day it, motion? Yep. Mm. Yes. Okay. Yes. The conservatives used it earlier. Um, yeah. every, every time this happens, there are people who wring their hands um, and say it is not appropriate for staff to appear before committees. The buck is supposed to stop with political masters. That is our system of government. Um, ministers are to be held accountable for things going wrong in their ministry. Um, Mm -hmm. not political staff. The only problem with that statement is my my challenge would be how often do we hold ministers to account? How often are ministers held accountable vis-a-days, right? When you look at SNC and everything that went wrong at SNC, the only person who lost their job aside from Jody Wilson. The the two ministers who were fired. (laughs) um, Who those weren't they weren't on the accountability side of the equation. Um, depends how you look at <laughs> yeah, it, I depends guess. Depends who you are, really. <laughs> um, weren't on the accountability side of the equation. Um, was Jerry Butts, a political staffer. Um, ultimately, the focus went to him. Um, a certain amount went to the prime minister. Of course, the prime minister was reelected um, post-SNC. Yeah. But in a very real way for opposition, um, going after staff and getting senior staff jerry butts in a very real way was irreplaceable to the prime minister um Mm -hmm. that induced more accountability in that government than almost anything else that happened throughout all of snc yeah so i think what you've said there is is really hits the nail on the head which is the irreplaceability so so there's a a notion we've i think we've discussed this on the show several times before that that political staff uh are replaceable and to a certain extent they are but in this government I think there's been a trend where, quite frankly, many of the people in PMO are far less replaceable than the median minister, yeah. right? Like, if if they had to tell Mark Garneau to, to go bye-bye, like, tomorrow, I don't think they would care as long as they got to keep, you know, a handful of people in PMO, right? Like, is if, they, if they had to take that trade, they would take it, I think, any day of the week. Um, like that's just kind of how centralized PMO driven government works is that the people who work in the prime minister's office inevitably become more powerful than 
like line ministers right uh in a very real way of course this was not what the what was you know famously uh this was the case in the or the the harper government sorry uh or at least that was kind of the outside perception and um this government ran really hard in 2015 on sort of bringing back cabinet government i think if anything this government's track record has been of even more centralization yes and even more of a high profile role for pmo staff so in that sense it has driven a culture where i think it is hard not to ask for staff accountability because staff are so powerful uh i in my heart of hearts i i'm a bit of a purist and i i think it would be nice if we could stick to the electeds right because it's their names on the ballot at the end of the day and i i think there's something very very tidy about that but uh, yes so one factor is what i've just discussed and the other factor frankly is that with the way our politics is right now um and just i i've sort of found like the idea and the theory with calling for ministerial accountability is that people will see ministers making fools of themselves on ethical issues and you know not being able to answer basic questions and they will say you know what like this government has clearly lost its its moral authority and we need to replace it what i've seen in recent years is you know and and people who are on twitter are, are, are no strangers to the, the the shamrock chicken wine brigade is that people have become so hardened in their support of the government that like nothing can really shake them loose and that has a lot to do with their very effective portrayal of the conservative party as just like an unacceptably scary right-wing party and like you know you can i i don't like the conservative party i don't want them to be government <laughs> uh i don't really want the liberals to be government either so for me it's kind of a, of a moot point whether it's one or the other in a lot of ways um so i don't really understand this to the degree that i think a lot of people who are more visceral about it do but there clearly is a sense that they will forgive anything. So in that sense, it becomes harder to say, well, if we you know, invite ministers and grill them and they don't give good answers, then that's the system working as it should, because clearly there is a feedback loop here that is broken. Yeah. You can go now. Okay. Yeah, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to let you get your little spiel out of it. Yep, I got well, my spiel out. I was, I was trying to do a mental checklist of the ministers that have left this government and why they left this government. Um. Scott Bryson, arson. <laughs> the the ones that come to mind, <laughs> not many of them. Scott Bryson, do not commit arson, please. Don't see me. <laughs> not many of them are due to political scandal, um, if any. And the only asterisk on that is uh, Bill Morneau. Um, but there, I'm not even necessarily convinced. You you would have to really hash through things about Morneau's departure, I think, to come to that conclusion. Um, I think there were many other reasons that Morneau left government, um, and I'm not suggesting that it was to run for the uh, president of the OECD. <laughs> uh, um, but instead, like a clash of personalities uh, between the prime minister's office and finance and things more along Though those lines. Though I do lines. think the, the we thing certainly pushed yeah, him out Yeah, it, it was certainly the straw yes. that broke the camel's back there. Um, but I had predict, you know, he had many other failings of substantial magnitude much earlier on. Indeed. And in fact, most yep. of the ministers we've seen leave. Um, the one from Winnipeg, whose name I can never remember. Uh, Marianne Petty Paul Taylor, Kirsty Duncan. Um, none of these are ones that have left under the cloud of scandal. Right? They have left for somehow managing to be 
very poorly regarded by the center. Um, and that's yeah. basically it. I, frankly, I, I think there should be more ministers that leave because they're poorly regarded by the center. But again, this government is one that's not prone to make difficult decisions. But in the rare instances where they have, it has been centered around who they like to work with more so than um, the political prowess of their ministers. The, yeah, or per, to performance. Or that, yeah, like, prowess as a pseudonym yeah. for performance there. Um, when it comes to performance, there's almost this inverse feedback loop where the the risk reward calculation seems to be and th this isn't only the liberal government i think any sort of modern government would do this is do we look worse if we fire a minister and actually hold that minister accountable um rather than then you're acknowledging an yeah error, rather right? than you're acknowledging that something has gone so wrong. is an inability yeah. to hold ministers account uh, accountable now baked into our political culture and i think the answer is yes I think so, too. Yeah, the, the sort of you cannot admit an error, right, has become the sort of fundamental guiding principle in political comms. Like you sort of skate around them or move and on. And you hope it or dies. Try to change the channel you or don't whatever. the issue. Yep. There is no accountability that exists. There's no ministerial accountability, basically, that exists in our system anymore. Well, unless it's like here, the accountability a, between the relationship between that minister and the prime minister. Like, that's it. Here, here's an interesting counterfactual. All right, if folks, that's it. Stephen Time Harper... If Stephen Harper doesn't fire Bevoda, do we remember her name today? No, absolutely not. That, that's what I mean. That's what I mean. It's like firing her, in a sense, probably was a political mistake for the Harper government in that they it recognized that there was an issue and that meant that they had something to answer for. If they had just brazened it out, and like, look, here's some other examples. Uh, Ralph, and I'm going to I'm gonna bring up the country to our south. My apologies, Jen. But Ralph Northam and Andrew Cuomo, both of whom ran into, you know, big scandals. Cuomo's, I think, in many ways, uh, far more egregious and offensive, though uh, Northam's was also egregious and offensive, um, though it did not have a body count like Cuomo's did. Both of those were very bad. And people said, wow, this guy should really resign. And what happened was they didn't resign. And people were like, oh, well, OK, then. And the problem went away for them, right? Like, as we'll see with Cuomo. But, like, there is a certain approach now, and to say nothing of the former president, there is a certain approach now that you can kind of just brazen it out. And if you don't leave, then people will just move on to the next thing, and you don't really pay a cost for yes. it. Uh, and that's not a good and, thing. And those that do leave <laughs> pay the cost, but are sort of suckers as a result, because... If you just brazen it out, it, it's less of an issue. It doesn't impact your career in the same way. I mean, the same dynamic exists at a smaller scale around candidate nominations, right? Um, particularly in the lead up to the election. It's almost like the candidates who get outed for saying ridiculous shit on social media um, that get fired for it because it's early enough that they can be replaced um yeah their lives and careers are ruined but those who get outed for saying stuff after sort of the ad drop deadline um and be you know they become mps and they serve on committees to this day i can think of examples um from the last election of MPs in yep. of MPs in exactly this situation, right? As can I. And so those yep. MPs eventually get rehabilitated. 
Um, well, the candidates who got booted and the only thing that comes up when you Google their name now are things from that election. Piss cup guy. Uh, <laughs> yes. Piss cup guy. You know? Had, had piss cup guy being elected. Uh, had piss cup guy, had piss cup video not <laughs> come out at the time it did. And it came out two days before election day and the conservative party didn't drop him. And he became a backbench MP for, you know, 10 years. You know, piss cup guys kicking around. In Ottawa, Rick Shirelli is trying to do that sort of in his own way. He's a Ottawa city yeah, councilor. City councilor. Um, who has faced, you know, a, a fairly egregious scandal and is just riding it out and just doesn't care what anyone has to say. Yeah, and like, let's... This is bad, right? Like, I think I think the sort of, like, people have learned that having no shame is a political superpower. And it is. It's fan- phenomenally effective to have no shame. But it's also really bad and, like, really is, I think, will have a corrosive effect on institutions. Um, I think people will feel less and less compunction about, you know, not openly profiting from public office, etc. Like... It's quite bad, and I, I don't really know how to pull out of that that sort of spiral of shamelessness, but uh, we should probably think about so, that. So, yeah, just, just to close the loop back to our initial topic of conversation, uh, which was, is targeting staff a politically viable alternative? And, you know, I really don't have an answer to that question. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I'm sort of two minds on yeah, it. Yeah, I, I very much am as well, because when you're pushing on one door and it's completely closed, you are very tempted to just go through the open door, um, particularly when, as as we've discussed in this government, it can be more more valuable to them. It's like, oh, the gold's actually behind the unelected door rather than the elected door. Um, yeah. But it's difficult because, you know, the consensus in Ottawa for a very long time has been, you know, staff shouldn't be the focus of these things. Uh, well, I say consensus, but that's sort of not really the case. As the conventional the wisdom, staff, I think. Historically yeah. as well. Yep. Um, Google John Baird point of order uh, for a lovely reminder <laughs> of one of the last times that happened. Well, and Nigel Wright during the, the Harper years and, you know, there's, Nigel there's a couple Wright, examples here. Um, but. Yeah. Uh, what's his name just testified before the defense committee in relation to the hiring of John Vance, um, uh, Ray Novak. Ray Novak. Um, like, yeah, there's all sorts of examples in this, and that precedence is really being worn down. Um, and I, I don't think it's as strong as perhaps it once was, but uh, it's still the no. And like, look, maybe this is that a lot of people will give. Yeah, it, and maybe this is where the accountability is now is with is with senior political staff. Though I, you know, I like. Their names are not on the ballot. It's unfortunate that that's where the power is because I, you know, and you know, look, like we're we both have experience in the political staffing world. I think political staff play a very useful role and they can be good for the system in a lot of ways. But yeah, to sort of become unelected power centers in the government is not really their job description in a lot of ways. So I, it is not the best thing to see. But yeah, I don't really know what to do about it. <laughs> All right, let's leave it there. Let's leave it there. Thank you, as always, for listening to Boys in Short Pants. Uh, we, like I've said many times, always appreciate that the people listen to the show and engage with us on Twitter and email us at shortpantspod uh, at gmail.com. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's how you say an email address. <laughs> That's how you say an email address. At shortpantspod on Twitter uh, and leave us a review on iTunes that always, or your favorite podcast store app. You know, whatever. I'm My brain is done. 
You guys get it. Go Reviews, into the Bricks and Mortar uh, podcast Twitter, store to pick up my podcast email. VHS. <laughs> go, to, go to Barnes & Noble. <laughs> uh, did you have an interesting beer while we were recording? Uh, I do, but I don't have the bottle in front of me. I think it was Ships in the Night or something like that from Stone City Ales. So it's a, a, uh, Stone City, yeah. it's a milk stout, an oatmeal milk stout, maybe just an oatmeal stout. Uh, coffee oatmeal stout, I think it was. Uh, very good. Ooh, very, really branching Stone out City there. Stone City Ales being renamed to Stone City Brew Co. Um, Kingston, Ontario. Great spot. Yeah, really nice spot. Uh, very good food, too, if you're, you're going through Kingston for whatever reason. Or perhaps are in Kingston. You know, I don't know why you would be, but there you go. Uh, I had uh, a Miller Highlight, oh, uh, which at apparently you. is the champagne of beers. So there you go. Uh, it was pretty good. I, I would did have you one spaghetti again. it or no? I did, yeah, have you looked outside? Of course I didn't. Are you kidding yeah, me? It's not nice enough to have a spaghetti. Yeah, actually, here's something I'll recommend for listeners. Uh, this is a little treat for you. Uh, get yourself a couple bottles of Miller High Life, uh, a six-pack, and a friend or two. And then uh, grab yourself a bottle of Aperol or Campari. If you prefer kind of a bitterer drink, Campari's better. If you don't really like bitter flavors, Aperol will be better. Uh, and a lemon. Uh, open up your Miller High Life. Probably two uh, lemons. Take the first couple of sips out. Yeah, probably two lemons. Take a couple sips so you're, you're sort of at the, the bottom of the neck uh, in terms of your level in your bottle. And then put in an ounce each of lemon juice and Campari or Aperol. This is called a spaghetti, and it is delightful. Legitimately, uh, one of the best discoveries I've made in the last couple of years. Uh, obviously, I didn't invent it, but it is a very, very delicious beverage. Nice on a nice sunny day uh, when you're you're outside having a nice socially distance beverage with some friends uh, on, on a patio or uh, someone's backyard or what have you. So, highly recommend that. Uh, please send us all your pictures of you enjoying your spaghetti as for pants pod. <laughs> and join it. And join and, us next uh, time there when Laurent provides instructions for how to shotgun a beer. <laughs> <laughs> Bye, everyone.